Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Soul of Business with Blaine Bartlett. I am your host, Blaine Bartlett. Um, I have lived in stories all my life in some way, shape, or form. Um, in the work that I do with my uh, clients, uh, one of the things I almost always bring up is to have them consider this, this notion that the story of who they are in their organization, the story of who they are in their life, actually gets into the room before they do, and that people will spend time sifting through that story before they ever get to, if they ever get to, the real person. And the consequence of that is oftentimes there is disconnect. And when we're looking at how leaders actually function effectively, they have to work with connection. You know, leadership's a relationship sport. And if there's no connection, you're kind of dead in the water <laughs> for all intents and purposes. So, um, I am absolutely thrilled to bring you uh, um, my guest today. Uh, Karen Eber is um, got a new book out. First of all, I'm just going to you know, drop that in because uh, there's a lot of stuff I want to say about who she is before we start doing anything. There's a story here. Um, but the, the, the name of the book is The Perfect Story, How to Tell Stories that Inform, Influence, and Inspire. And if anybody is qualified to talk about this, it's Karen. Uh, her TED Talk uh, has had over 2 million views uh, to date. Um, and the, the, the talk was how your brain responds to stories and why they're crucial to leaders. And just you know, formally, I'll just, you know, just kind of do the CV uh, <laughs> note here. Um, Karen was previously head of culture. Uh, she was a chief learning officer and the head of leadership development at General Electric and also at Deloitte. So she's got kind of a manufacturing background, but she's also got uh, an assurance. Uh, well, yeah, assurance is the tax side, but uh, you know the, the more the yeah, number stuff here. Yeah, you know, kind of the, the uh, in the in the in the trenches sort of a thing. How how do things all fit together? And stories inform all of that. So that is a butchered explanation of who she is. She's going to tell us a whole lot more here because I want to actually go beyond the story of Karen and actually have st- uh, Karen. Let us know who she is through the course of our conversation. So, Karen Eber, welcome to the Soul of Business. Blaine, thank you. What a wonderful introduction. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, this idea of storytelling. Um, I mean, I remember you know, when I was growing up, uh, and I'm, not, I'm sure that this isn't the first time you've heard this analogy, but when I was growing up, my grandparents, uh, I, I remember sitting with my granddad and him telling me stories about his life. And that informed a lot of my experience about the family's culture, about who we were as a family. 
Um, you know, my grandfather was born in 1900, you know, they you know, literally migrated uh, to the West Coast. And there was all kinds of stories about homesteading, about, I mean, just some fascinating things about areas in the Oregon uh, rainforest, the Oregon coast that they homesteaded in. And what that did to my dad, how that informed how he grew up with his brothers. I mean, just all that stuff. So the stories were writ large in my mind. Um, and then I grew up and you know, they, they still kind of inform some of the stuff that I do and some of the ways that I think about who I am. So with that kind of a uh, setup here, how did you get interested in the power of storytelling? Uh, Two-part two answer. First, I uh, was born with blue eyes like most babies, many babies. And around four or five months, they started to change to two different colors. So I have a brown eye and a green eye. And I love this. It is something that has always made me feel special. It's my favorite thing about myself. If we're allowed to have a favorite thing. But as you start to get to school age and you start being around more people and having other interactions, I started to learn like this thing that I loved about myself wasn't viewed as so endearing by others because people didn't know what to make of it. And I would be in conversations and I could see people's eyes going back and forth, probably like people are doing, you know, trying to, to <laughs> see if they can see my eyes. Um, and their brains would be saying like, something isn't right here. And mid conversation, their words would come to a halt and they would say, do you know, you have two different color eyes <laughs> as if I didn't know. Right. Uh, sometimes I would play along and be like, oh, no. Um, and then it would be, you know, my dog has two different color eyes, to which I'm like, thank you. Like, what do you do with that? Um, David Bowie. David Bowie has two different color eyes. Yes, no, he did. He, he yeah. did not. He did not. He, he had didn't. an accident. Yep. He oh. had an accident, which had one of his pupils be dilated. His eyes do look two different colors, but they're not. Um, okay. And then the, what color eyes do your parents? I know, I know, <laughs> destroying all of the folklore. Um, but then the next question would be like, what color eyes do your parents have? And and do you see different colors out of each eye? And you know, the, it would just be this continuous drumbeat of questions. Like, forget what we were talking about. It is now, hey, come over here. You've got to see this. And I would have like 10 faces in front of me staring at me. And then would come the, how did that happen? And this thing that I loved about myself was suddenly this spectacle and this thing that I felt like I was on display for, and I hated it. So I got really annoyed, and I one day decided I am going to tell a different story. So when I got the How Did It Happen, I started talking about um, about the age of five. I was in my bedroom coloring one night, and you know you have that big box of crayons of the you know, for me, it was a cigar box, but you've yeah. got your perfect ones and your broken ones and your peeled ones. Well, I've got this box of crayons and I was hungry. Dinner wasn't going to be for a few hours. So I picked up a green crayon and I smelled it and it didn't smell like anything. And I took a nibble and it was kind of interesting. It had interesting texture and it tasted pretty good. So I ate the green crayon and I liked it. And I ate every green crayon that was in that box. And the next no. day I woke up and my eye was green. <laughs> and then I would be quiet. <laughs> and usually this is what happens, right? People start laughing and some people are like, do we believe her? Do we not believe her? What is she doing? But what 
happened consistently was this shift in energy. I went from being on display to now being human and having a different type of interaction. And in most cases, you know, I would admit that I did not eat the crayons, but in most cases, people would then apologize and realize like, yeah, I was kind of that my questions were kind of silly and I was kind of treating you funny, but we had a completely different interaction. And people were telling me years later that they see crayons and they think of me and they always think of my eyes. And so I recognized because this happened that you can use the story to change energy. You can create a whole different dynamic to your point of the story enters the room before the leader does. The leader can then tell the story that changes the energy in the room. Mm -hmm. So as I worked in my career in uh, first Hewlett Packard and then in Deloitte doing leadership development there and, and a head of culture role in one of the businesses in General Electric and a chief learning officer, I was tasked with this place, especially with culture. How are you um, impacting the day-to-day environment that employees are in? How are you creating a place where work is interesting and engaging, where people want to be and that they're not feeling um, a lack of psychological safety, a lack of trust, like all of the good things are there. And you can have values that you hang on the wall and you can come up with ideas, but none of that changes anything until each person stops and thinks like, what does this mean for me? And I started using stories in these moments to connect because in GE, the chief culture role was for 90,000 employees in 150 countries for the business that I was in. There was no way I could physically get to each person. But by using a story, I could. Each person could stop and think, what would I do in this situation? What does this mean for me? What do I want to do? They're the original scalable technology. And throughout my career, I kept noticing these moments where I was trying to get businesses to make investment in technology or programs or um, even persuade them to do different things that allow for work to be better. And maybe two or three people had the the approval power, the ability to say yes, because they Mm -hmm. own the budget. But everyone else had the ability to say no and stop what you were doing when they weren't even the decision makers. And so I found that stories were the way to slow that no, to get them on my side. So they were then persuading the storytellers. And so it's a combination of, it's a way to help people think, but it's a way to, to influence and align and inspire. And throughout the years, I started to get asked, well, how are you doing this? And, and what do we actually do to where I am today, having done the TED Talk and um, publishing the book to help people recognize, like, we all tell stories and you can be a great storyteller. And it's actually because there's a science and a mythology, a mythology behind the pro- methodology behind the process. And a mythology. That you can follow it, to, yeah, there is a mythology. And a mythology too. too yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I love this because, uh, and I, and I, okay, I'm, you know, you just salted the mind here and, and, and salted the mind, so to speak. Uh, I've got all kinds of ideas percolating here. Um, the idea of, um, and you mentioned this twice in that, uh, setup here. What does this mean to me? What does this mean to me? And the idea of storytelling. Uh, I'm making a story up in my mind when I'm listening to you, which is organized around the meaning. And it's a kind of a, 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 an internal thing. It's, an, it's a default process all of us go through, which I think goes to the, the science of storytelling. In part, you know, how do I interrupt that, automa- that automaticity that's kind of engaged? Um, so and that is the question I'll ask here. How do I interrupt, if I'm a leader, the, the automaticity of people engaging 
uh, a meaning-making process, and they're listening to the leader describe, here's where we're headed, here's what we'd like to see happen, here's what I need. And oftentimes the leader isn't aware of what's going on in the listener. They're making meaning up. What does it mean to me? How do I get in front of that as a leader? First, recognize that's happening whether you're telling a story or communicating. Mm -hmm. No matter what is said or what someone is reading, there's the what is shared and there's the what is going on in my head. And that's going to be different person to person because what's going on in my head is based on my knowledge, my experiences. My brain Mm -hmm. is going through the files saying, what have we done before? What do we know? And that is in constant complementary patterns or competing patterns to what's being said. And so, you know, I'll often hear a lot of like, why should I tell a story? It's just easier to get up and talk or present data. Sure. It's easier for you, but that doesn't mean that your audience is understanding it or getting any meaning from it. And it takes a bit of work to be intentional about your audience. Cause by the way, stories start with the audience, not with the idea. You want to be intentional about your audience and what you're trying to do to make sure that it lands the best way possible. Storytelling is communication, and it's a way to help ensure understanding by dynamically engaging the brain, because it's not enough to tell a story. The way you tell a story is going to make a difference in the experience. And and dynamically engaging the brain, there's there's a neuroscience that's involved here. Can can you talk a little bit about that? Because, uh, yeah, I've, you know. That, I've been a student of that for a number of years, and you know, the the idea of neuroplasticity, but also more more interestingly, I think just the neuroscience of how connections are made. And I don't mean you know, necessarily synaptic connections, but how connections are made um, with what it is that is being you know, presented in front of me. How, do, how does yeah, that work? There's, 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 we could spend our whole conversation on this because there's so many it. layers to it. Yeah. What I'll do is I'll focus on what I call the five factory settings of the brain. So this yeah. is, um, this is how I'm trying to evolve the conversation on storytelling of help people understand a bit of the science. And then what do you actually do with that when you're telling a story, which is the basis of the book. The idea of the five factory settings of the brain is like, think of your phone. It comes with factory settings, default settings, and and there's some things you can do to tweak them or enhance enhance them, but they're there. You're not going to get rid of them. And the same thing happens in our brain. Our brain naturally responds to information and and communications and storytelling in a dynamic way. And when you start to understand them, you can lean into them or navigate them in your stories. So if it's helpful, I'll go through the five and that will lay out. Um, I tend to do it in chunks. I tend to talk about the first three and the last two because they play together well. Okay, well, well, let's do the first three and then we'll take a break and then we'll come back and we'll pick up the second two. Sure. And these are, um, if anybody's like reaching for the volume to turn this off because they don't want to go to science class, this is not going to sound like science class, I promise you. Because the first one, first factory setting is your brain is lazy. Number one goal, get you through the day alive. When it does, it's like high five, you did it. Do the exact same thing the exact same way tomorrow because it worked. If you do anything different, we might have to spend more calories. And as the brain, I am the stingiest banker in the world of calories because the brain is actually using the most calories out of any organ. They use 20% of the body's calories. And it's not just to help you breathe and move, but it is because the brain spends the majority of their time of the time making predictions. 
So some of that is, am I safe? What's happening in the environment around me? But a lot of that is, if I'm going downstairs, how do I need to place my foot? If I'm getting up from the chair, how do I balance my weight so I don't fall? The brain wants to make predictions because it's less energy. We Mm -hmm. have tried and true methods when we're making predictions. And because of this, the brain never wants to run out of calories, never wants to go bankrupt because that's bad. You're not alive. So this is why you come home from a really hard day and you think, I'm going to put on that show that I have binged before because I don't want to think. Those nights where like your brain is hurting, it almost feels like it's throbbing. You're like, I just need a break. I don't want to think. It's your brain saying, we're going to be lazy. When you're in a meeting, listening to a communication or listening to someone go row by row of data and your brain is like, whoop, we're going to think about where we're going on vacation and what we're ordering from the grocery store and, you know, the list of things we need to do when we get home. That's because your brain is taking that moment to, to dip out and it's natural. It's going to happen. But when you are communicating or telling a story, you want to force the brain to spend calories because when the brain spends calories, it's going to pay attention. And you do that through the way you're including specific details or unexpected events. So the book that you get two pages in, you're like, nope, your brain is saying it's not worth the calorie spend or the show that you just can't get into. Like this happens naturally. And what you want to think about when you're telling your story for the first one is like, how do we get some calories spent here? We want that. That pairs with the second one, which is that your brain makes assumptions. Uh, So if I put up an image of an inkblot, you would immediately guess what it is. I don't even have to say, you know, Blaine, what do you think this is? Your brain is just going to immediately try to figure out what it is. And that goes with the brain being lazy. It wants to make sense of things because it can then make predictions and know what to do with it. The faster our brain makes assumptions and understands things, the faster it can go float on the raft with a pina colada in lazy mode. Mm -hmm. And so... These assumptions are happening when we're listening to someone share information, when we look at a slide of data, when you're watching the movie and you're trying to guess what comes next. It is constantly happening because it's a part of our prediction making. When you're telling a story, you either want to harness those assumptions, lean into them because you know they're going to make them, or put things that are the, the speed bump for the brain to hit and have the brain go like, huh, I wasn't expecting that. So interrupting a pattern, so to speak, right? Yeah. Completely. Yeah. yeah. And the third one is that um, we have this library of files in our brain. So our brain, our, our body is taking in um, 34 gigabytes of information through our senses that might actually be higher. That number was pre-COVID. There have been some different studies after COVID and it's, it's a bit clear, but I think it's definitely higher. So information comes in through your senses and they get stamped with emotion. So if you think about you take a photo on your camera, if you swipe up, you're going to see the date, the location, the f-stop, the size of the image. Like all this stuff is just immediately stamped on that image. Same thing is kind of happening as we're taking in information, as we're having these experiences, they get stamped with emotions and filed into our long-term memory. And it's in in the most simplest terms, our brain looks at these experiences, this information and and says, is this something we've already done? Is there an existing file we want to put this in because we know Mm -hmm. this? Or is it related to something we know? Or do we need to open a whole new file? And this is you know, the the forming of neural pathways. So anytime we have experiences, these three are working together because we're making assumptions 
based on what's in our library files. We're trying to make sense of things based on the knowledge and experiences we have. And by the way, we're going to be making decisions based on the emotions stamped on those things. And our brain is always looking for how can we figure out what this is quickly so we can slide into lazy mode. So let me pause. Those are the first three. Sure. That is great. So, yeah. So these three, they actually work in concert, you know, then, you know, and I like how they're actually kind of segregated out, but they are part of a, you know, a holistic process, uh, yeah. if you will. From, so from sensory processing to decision-making, like it's all in yeah. there. Yeah. So that, that's the precursor to the next step, which I think are going to be the next two items here, which we're going to explore when we come back from this little break. Okay. We're listening to Karen Ebert, and the idea here is that your brain is triggered or pacified, engaged or lulled by stories. And how do we tell the perfect story? Yeah, stories that inform, influence, and inspire. And when we come back, we're going to look at these other two factory settings. The nature of life is evidenced in nature. Nature grows, and all of nature honors the desire to be more to have more, and to do more. Life thrives when it's allowed to grow. And ideally, thriving is what we also, all of us, want to be able to do. Unfortunately, at some stage in life, most people find themselves settling into what I can only call a rut. And a rut is nothing more than a coffin with the ends kicked out. You want to quickly get out of any rut that you find yourself in. When you stop growing, that's when the coffin starts to appear. You know, the simple truth is this, and this is true for everything in nature. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Every one of us dies. So the question we need to come to grips with is not are we going to die. The question nature asks us to answer is are we truly living? That's what motivation is about. It's the desire to move. It's the desire to grow and to excel. Have I lived? How have I lived? I'd love for you to take advantage of my Leadership Mindset Masterclass. It's all about providing you with the tools to ensure thriving for yourself and for those around you. Register today to receive the free introduction video and find out more about this acclaimed program. You'll also receive a copy of my international number one bestseller, Compassionate Capitalism, A Journey to the Soul of Business. I'm Blaine Bartlett, and I look forward to helping you thrive. Welcome back, folks. Um, before uh, we took a break, uh, Karen was um, describing the uh, five factory settings of the brain from a neuro, uh, neuroscience perspective here. And we're looking here at just kind of the nature of storytelling and how it actually fits into this process. So um, when we look, you know, you know, the brain is lazy. That was you know, point number one here. <laughs> the brain's lazy and it makes predictions as a consequence because it's easy to do. There's not much caloric consumption you know, that, that happens as a consequence of that. Those predictions are made off of the you know, step two here, which is the assumptions that are being you know, generated just almost in rapid fire uh, sequence here. And those assumptions are predicated on memory, which is number three here. Uh, we're, we're, we're continually stamping uh, input 
that we have, you know, actually are grokking, if you will, and <laughs> that we're taking in uh, with emotional content. And then we look at, okay, what does this current event look like? Does it, you know, resemble something that happened before? What's the assumption I can make off that? And then I predict, and this is the brain just, you know, real quickly you know, generating now an action that comes out of that. Okay. So that's steps one, two, and three. Step four would be, and step yeah. five as a consequence would be. Yeah. I'm going to sneak in one more on step three, just to support it. Um, yeah. Because the third step is we've got this library of files, this categories, categorization. When you look at, let's say a slide of numbers, you're looking at data for your business or something. Um, we're each going to interpret that differently if someone hasn't given you a story because we each have our own individual experiences that the brain is using to make predictions. We're making assumptions based on what we know, and that's going to be different person to person to person if you're not taking people through it. And so that starts to become really key in this. You're starting to see some of the patterns of, of how this goes. Um, number four and number five. So number four is that we naturally seek in groups and out groups and have as a part of our survival. So an in group is a group of people that we share the same values that we know, we trust, we feel comfortable around, or that we aspire to be a part of. So, um, this might be, you know, when you're buying a product because you're aspiring for, I don't know, you're buying a car because of a lifestyle or something, right? That's a in-group that you want to be a part of. An out-group is a group that you feel different from. And it doesn't have to be negative or bad. Uh, charities use out-groups all the time when they're sharing the story. The Red Cross will share the story of the family whose home that was destroyed in the natural disaster. And you're learning about how they've lost all their possessions and they're trying to find their pet and they are trying to get clothes to clean and then you're sitting in air conditioning next to plumbing and water and you realize how different your circumstances are. And so when you're telling a story, you want to be intentional with, am I telling a story where the audience is meant to feel like a member of an in-group, that it feels very familiar and something that they want to be a mm -hmm. part of? Or am I telling a story that I want them to be part of an out-group or both? Um, because that can make a difference in the experience of it. And the last one pairs with that, which is in the most simplest form, our bodies have these cocktails of neural chemicals that drive us to seek pleasure or avoid pain. Mm -hmm. We have cortisol and adrenaline that are dumped in our body when we need to focus to prepare. It's not just that there's a dangerous situation, but our, when we have this instinct that something uh, is heightened, those neurochemicals are dumped and it actually narrows our focus of attention so we can respond and get out of a difficult situation. And then there's the cocktail of oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, which are these bonding, feel-good connection chemicals that are the, you know, you get the goosebumps and uh, you're watching the movie and it makes you smile. And so in the most simplest form, we seek pleasure. We have these behaviors that allow for us to, to feel good. And we have these behaviors that allow for us to avoid focus and or to, to increase focus and to avoid danger. And so you have this other opportunity of, are you telling a feel good story? Are you telling a story that is intentionally meant to make the person feel uncomfortable or mm. take them through discomfort to feel good? So you've got these five that start to show you, oh yeah, the way you tell a story makes a difference in the experience because these are all different levers that you can choose to pull in different ways that impact how the audience is going to experience the story. You know, that, you know, to me, that's just absolutely fascinating because it you know, <clears throat> it feeds in, I mean, I, I mentioned right at the front end here, 
Uh, leadership is a relationship activity. You know, and, and I truly believe that this is true, that you know, at this point is true, that all any organization is, is a collection of people that are in relationship. And that's all any organization is. And if the relationships are working relatively well, you got a pretty good shot at being successful. Um, but most leaders don't pay attention to the relational dynamic, in my experience. I mean, that has certainly yeah, been <laughs> a very lucrative area for me in my business, uh, is, is working with leaders to yeah, kind of bring this to, to the forefront. When you're looking at these neurological triggers, these five pieces, and, and I'm looking at a leader here crafting a story, what... What, how does this play into trust? And I'm focusing on trust for a very specific reason, because if everything's a relationship and everybody is in a relationship, trust is the catalyst for keeping things together and keeping things yeah. moving. Uh, in there's a, in a few a, things. A, yeah. Yeah. There's a few things that are happening in the brain that support the increase in trust when you're telling a story. So the act of someone sharing a story and being vulnerable and it doesn't even have to be a story about themselves, but that they are are sharing a narrative, sends this signal to the listener, right? We respond to vulnerability. You see a puppy and you can't help but go, or a little bird, or right? But there's the, the adult human version of that where we're sharing a story and attempt at connection that actually creates an increase in empathy in the listener. So the fact that I am sharing a story with you makes you feel a little like, oh, she's shared, she's trusting me enough to share this with me. That that feels good. Um, as you experience increased empathy, you actually get an increase in oxytocin okay. released in your body. It's now a moment of connection that is happening because your brain, your body is releasing oxytocin in response to what I am saying. And that, as it increases, leads to increased trust. There's been a whole bunch of different experiments done where they tell an intentionally flat narrative and they tell dynamic ones and they, they play with different variables and start to see the difference. And it is when you tell a story that there is an increase in empathy, which leads to an increase in that oxytocin, which leads to an increase in trust. What's happening in the brain is that when the oxytocin is released, it sends a signal to the brain of I trust this person. Like I want to know this person. This person feels safe to be around. And so this is why when a leader tells a story, it is so dynamic. And again, it doesn't have to be a private story. Storytelling is personal. I want to be very clear about that, but it doesn't mean you're telling the most personal stories. Mm -hmm. I, in my TED talk, tell stories about two different people, but it's personal because it's my perspective. And that is what we're doing in stories. You're making them personal by offering your perspective because no two people will tell stories the same way. And it's that attempt that that um, gesture of making a story personal that creates this neurochemical shift and that increase in trust that we see. see that the idea of making it personal uh, kind of moves into the territory of authenticity uh, yeah, in one sense. And I remember an old mentor of mine, a fellow by the name of Will Schutz, you know, Dr. Will Schutz, um, said to me one time, Blaine, people will connect through vulnerability. People connect through vulnerability. And I went, yeah, that's yeah, I get that. I understood. I really understood that. And then when I was doing work with Nokia, uh, and, and, and I've got permission to talk about this, uh, but I remember, you know, they had uh, one of the taglines in the, in the old Nokia before it crashed and now it's coming back. 
But one of the taglines in their business model was, you know, Nokia, connecting people. Mm-hmm. And the inside joke was disconnecting families because people were working so hard. You know, we're connecting people, but disconnecting families. And I started right. thinking about this, that we connect through vulnerability, but we disconnect through certainty. Mm. We disconnect through certainty because certainty doesn't give a, a, a place for people to access. And here's the question that's embedded in this. You know, when I'm telling a story, it's implicit that I want it to be believable in one sense. You know, so authenticity comes into play here. But there's a kind of a fine line, I think, that kind of works into play here where I, I don't want it to be so polished if you will, so certain that there's no place for somebody to connect. Is is that a fair assessment uh, to be making here? It's not the way I would describe, yeah, it's not the way I would describe it because you, you often see um, really polished presenters, Uh really um, TED talks where it feels really smooth or people that you've seen, they're like, wow, they're good. And you still respond to it. It's, Mm -hmm. The, what's important is that it feels like you're in there. You can That's be very important. polished, but it's you being the you is you. And there's a spectrum. You can you can bumble and be a little bit socially awkward or whatever mm-hmm. that is, but people will respond to you telling a story, or you and could be really you polished. Are there. You yeah, are it's there. not the robotic yeah. piece of it. And this is yeah. the part that. I often encounter in businesses so many leaders feel like I have to get up as the leader and be very formal. So I, I was working with a really senior leader who was a head of talent management in a Fortune 500 organization who was very much this, very polished, very would come in and he'd have his agenda and let's go through the day. And he was prepared. And to him, that was showing care for people around him. I'm coming in, ready to work. Let's go. And everybody just was like, eh. and he got coaching like, you need to give a little of yourself. You need to start with something. Doesn't need to be the most personal thing ever, but no one is connecting with you. And so it was still a little formulaic, but it worked. He would come in mm-hmm. and he would share, my wife and I went to this new restaurant this weekend and you know, he would just share a little anecdote like that. Everybody have a good weekend. Okay. Yeah. Let's get going. And it would be that simple, but it created such a shift because now it wasn't just this, this, this. It was like, oh, yeah, you're a human. Oh, you have a wife. Oh, that's great. You know, he didn't even have to tell a story about himself, but the act of telling it made a shift. The reason I say it was a little formulaic is you could tell that he was like, told the personal story. Check. Now let's go. But it was enough. It was a starting point. And sometimes that's what people need to get going. And so that. I started with a story about my eyes on purpose. Sometimes you need to shift the energy. And sometimes that is, you need to feel a little more relatable. People want to know that you are having the same challenges and frustrations that we all are. And that, um, you know, there's so many ways to demonstrate that from talking about an article you read to sharing a moment in your life or a mistake or, you know, sharing what you heard from someone else or what you learned from a situation. Like there's just endless ways to invite people in and that is going to create the neurological shift. Yep. I, I love that. I love that. Um, the authenticity piece, yeah, you know, you know, I mean, old mentor of mine and, and one of my dearest, dearest friend was a fellow by the name of Bob Proctor. And Bob, you know, was on platforms 
his entire adult life. Uh, he passed away last year. Uh, but he would tell stories over and over. And I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I heard the same story, but Bob was always present in the story, always present in the story and his audiences. And these would be you know, ballrooms filled with a thousand people leaning forward and, and engaged. The brain was, you know, he would tell stories that would get the lazy brain woken up and away we would go. And that was transformative. Um, what are some of the key mistakes? I've got two questions here as we're coming to kind of come to an end here. Unfortunately, I want to have you back on. This is juicy. <laughs> but what are some of the common mistakes that, that, that people will make? And then I want to talk a little bit just very briefly about how do leaders keep people connected to the soul of the business through the use of stories? So two questions there. Yeah. What's yeah. the common, what's common mistakes? The biggest one is that leaders will tell the story they want to tell and not the story the audience needs to hear. And what that is, is think about the time you've been at the holiday table with the relative that's on their loop, just telling their script of a story over and over. And it doesn't even matter if you're there because they're just going to tell the story. And it's almost like you can mouth along with it at your seat or sounds a little bit like what this leader did, although it sounds like he was getting enough that hadn't heard it. Um, we tell stories not to make ourselves look good or to be attention seeking, but we tell stories in service of an outcome, something that we want our audience to be able to know, think, feel, or do different. And when you don't stop to think of who am I sharing this with and what is that outcome that I want? And like, what, where are they now? What might be an obstacle in that? Your story's not going to land. And whether you know the story you want to tell or not, you have to start with the audience because that makes what the story is going to be each time. You know, I, I tell this story in the opening of my TED talk about someone dropping a phone down an elevator shaft. I tell that story one way to a business audience, but um, there's a security guard in the story. If I was talking to security guards, I would tell it differently. And yeah. so first thing, most important, you've got to tell the story that the audience needs to hear. Um, otherwise, we've all sat through those stories that they're not for you. They're for them. And that's, you're nodding. I'm guessing you've experienced some of these. <laughs> Been there, done that, actually. Yes. <laughs> yep. We all have. I've yeah. done it too because I missed the moment. I didn't prep in advance. And that prep isn't lengthy. It's, you know, before you walk into a situation or an engagement, you just have to stop and think. Um, most often when I'm telling a story and it doesn't work, it's because I, I missed the audience in some way or I missed how to connect it to them. You know, the yeah. idea was right, but I just didn't connect it far enough. That's the biggest one. That That's is really great. the biggest one. Um, yeah. the, the second biggest I would probably say is that we are um, just not putting a little bit of time in to give a basic structure to the story. Mm. Most often it'll be something like, uh, it was, you know, I was going to meet my friend. It was Tuesday. I was running a little bit late. I, I got in the car and the gas was on E and actually, wait, I think it was Monday because it was raining and I had to go back in the house and get my umbrella. And it's like, I haven't even started the story. Yeah. The person is trying really hard. They're like looking off and to the right. They're trying to recount what happened because they want to tell it accurately. But as the listener, None of that matters. So many details that we try to put into stories don't matter because it's like we're recounting a dream that to us was so vivid and to people that didn't experience it, they're like, so when you take a few moments to really just put a basic structure in place, 
you not only tell about our story, it's easier for the audience to follow. Perfect. And, and both of those are actually really nicely tailored segues into, as a leader, how do I tell a story that connects back to that that esprit that you know, is, is the company, is the organization, whether it's a for-profit, non-for-profit, or a family? What's the story? Yeah. How do I, how do I you know, work that? It's not one story. That's probably the myth that people have. Like, what is that story that I can tell that embodies my cause, my client, my stakeholder, my business? What is that origin story I could tell? I don't care what your origin story is because it's going to change. Like who you were six months ago is not who you are now. If Amazon was still telling their origin story, they'd be talking about mailing books all over. And of course, books are a big part of their business, but there's so much more. And so what is really important when you're trying to tell a story is recognize you don't have one chance to tell a story. Stories earn you the right to tell more stories. So don't be in search of like the story that's going to encompass everything you need. Instead, get more specific. Who are you talking to? Is it that employee? Is it the, the customer or the client? Is it a stakeholder? And what are the challenges they're facing or the aspirations? What are those pain points that one of my friends calls it? Punch them in the bruise. Like, what are those? Because people will <laughs> yeah. really connect and respond to those and you start doing those and then you tell more and more. I don't care about your origin. I care about why now and maybe a little bit about where you're going, but it's going to change. So yeah. don't worry so much about what is the story. Start telling a bunch of stories. Beautiful. Beautiful. Karen Eber, uh, where can people find out more about you and your book? My website, easiest place. Both are right there. It's my name, K-A-R-E-N-E-B-E-R.com. There's a book page where you can learn more about the perfect story. And uh, at the end of each chapter are these interview vignettes with people that tell stories in different ways, like the a former creative director at Pixar, uh, executive producer of The Moth, a TED Radio Hour podcast host. So you not only get step-by-step -step through storytelling, you get to walk in the shoes of some other storytellers. And on my website, there's a brain food section, which has a bunch of articles and, and things on storytelling. Great. I am going to go spelunking. Love it. <laughs> sounds like a fascinating website. I cannot thank you enough, Karen. This has been an absolute treat for me. And I hope uh, you as a listener have uh, gotten a couple of nuggets that you can take away here. I'm sure you have. Um, find a, find a, a way to you know, in, incorporate story. <clears throat> You're always telling them anyway. Let's become masterful at it. Uh, and in that mastery, we can actually change the way our life looks, feels, and acts. Okay. So my guest today, Karen Eber, thank you so much. I would, I mentioned this, I would love to have you back. And I've also got a couple of other shows that I think would be very interesting for you to be a, uh, a guest on. Uh, and I'm going to talk to you about, about those that. as soon as we close off here. Okay. So folks, um, you're Thanks listening to Blaine Bartlett, me. the soul of business, and we will, Pick it up next episode. And in the meantime, find a way to uh, set yourself up as a center of distribution in your life, not a center of accumulation. You'll find your life works a whole lot better. Thank you much. Take care and we'll see you next time.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.